What's up, world? We're here. I, it, how are you doing? Are you asking me? <laughs> no, Some, I'm not talking to you at all. I'm talking to the people, man. You're never asking me. How? Well, also, how are you? I'm not going to tell you. I'm doing okay, I'm folks. Right. How right. are you? We're very happy to be here on Ergo, WHPK, <laughs> ErgoRadio.com. Um, back in Ergo Studio B for a week, catching uh, someone just passing through town. We're very excited to be here with a very special guest. Uh, flew in very early this morning. He's a poet and a critic and a writer and an interviewer uh, and just a brilliant person with the words and ideas. Uh, Hanif, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no doubt. H- how are you feeling? How is the world treating you? How are you treating the world? <laughs> it's a travel day, so those, those are weird days. Yeah, travel days are weird for me, especially even though we're only an hour difference on the time zone thing, time zones always mess me up because I am like... I think the older I get, the harder it is for me to adjust, even when the hour goes backwards, Um, especially like eating. So I had lunch earlier than I normally would today. Mm. I don't know. So I'm doing okay. Uh, The world has treated me fine, although I wish time zones were all the same. I'm trying to figure out like why we have the I mean, I guess because I was thinking about this with the debate starting at nine or whatever, because it had to be on the West Coast. Yeah. When I drove through. It's a quick sidebar, and then we'll talk about all the brilliant things that you uh, do. But I did a road trip where I drove through Arizona, and I got really mixed up because so Arizona doesn't they don't do it, yeah, they don't. But the Navajo reservation does, yeah, and that's the majority of Arizona, right? So, and I was like, I had plans to meet someone on the other side of the reservation at a certain time, and I had no idea if I was an hour late or an hour early or if I was right on time. So I just had to show up and be like, "World, I'm here." Yeah. Um, that all that being said, I think that's the perfect segment. No, but uh, thank you for, for, for making the trip. This is how we do. We, yeah, like, yeah. we start off real awkward, th- throw the water on you, splash, you wake you up. Yeah, yeah we have the that's slime perfect. from Nickelodeon that's gonna I drop need in. all of those things yeah. after I woke up at 4 10 this morning in Connecticut. Um, and that was hard. Yeah, it sounds like a Drake so, song, by the way. <laughs> 4 10 in Connecticut. What's your, what's your least favorite part about traveling? Um, so I don't necessarily like. So when I think about traveling, I also think about the fact that like I am able-bodied and like able to do a lot of things that a lot of folks cannot do when they travel. Right. And so like with that in mind, I think the worst thing um, about traveling is um, the kind and well-meaning person who still tries to have a full conversation with you through headphones (laughs) on airplanes. Um, <laughs> as often it is a very kind and well-meaning person, right. which makes it more difficult for They're me to be genuinely like, curious. Yeah. And, so, and occasionally that's led to like some very good interactions. A couple months ago, I sat next to an old, old black woman who reminded me so much of my grandmother. And so like, as I like at first was like, man, I'm like trying to listen to this music. Like I'm trying to listen to chants or whatever I was listening to. And she just kept like asking questions. And then I like leaned into this idea that she maybe just really needs someone to talk to. Yeah. So I'm a little more um, interested in that interaction. Not as much in the, just like the dude just asking random questions about like, so are you traveling for business <laughs> yeah, or pleasure? that whole thing? Yeah. yeah that like, makes I can't sense. Do that. like for, from reading your work, a lot of your stuff is like rooted in empathy. Right. So yeah. like, how, how do you how do you do be empathetic to like at 445 to like those yeah. who are like generally annoying? Right. Because like they need it, too. There's usually right. they like need that empathy too. something that's happening that makes them so annoying. Because I am sure <laughs> that in a given day I am annoying many people. Right. I'm sure that <laughs> in any given day there is someone who I am someone who's like having a long day who I am annoying just by like existing in their space. So I try to be empathetic to even the most annoying people. And it's hard at like four in the morning or yeah. it's hard at like five in the morning. Do you, do you have a, as we're talking about it, do you have a cutoff to your empathy? Do you like, is there, is there a line? Oh, of course we all see? do. Right. What, what What is, what is your line? I mean, I think just in general or yeah, on the yeah. on airplane. Randomly. Oh, and, <laughs> on, <laughs> you will just vary at 30,000 feet. Yeah, I, mean, it's, yeah. I think in general, right. Like I think, I think there are times in which it is obvious that someone is not trying to be a good person, mm. right? Um, like they're existing solely to like the internet troll, except in real life, right? Right. Who's existing like solely to agitate or hurt someone. I I, I have my empathy doesn't stop at that person, but the the amount I can give is mm. a lot smaller because mm. I just don't I don't have the time. You know what <laughs> I mean? Like I think there's like a my favorite poem one of my favorite poems ever is a poem called gravity by angel nafis mm. uh and there's a line in that poem uh 
I, I, I would tell you what I don't have time for, but I don't have time. Yeah. <laughs> and I think um, I used to think that line was so brilliant as just like a metaphorical thing. But now I just literally do not. You know what I mean? Like, like as far as like how my days, I like literally don't have the time for to extend some empathy to some people. So let's talk a little bit about like what fills all of that time and all the days you do like so many incredible things. You're here uh, in Chicago because your new book, this is so radio-y. I got so radio-y for a second, but the new book is out now. The book uh, is out now. But yeah, yeah. the book is out and I'm really excited to see it. The crown ain't worth much. Um, let's get like, first of all, just with the book now in the world and you traveling around it and sharing it with folks, when you like look at the cover, when you like actually hold it in your hands, like what are you feeling these days looking at this book you made? Um, I feel pretty good now. I, I think the cover, especially um, shout out to Max Sansing, who is yeah. a Chicago artist who did the cover um, and was like so cool about the cover and um, also did the cover of Neymar, did the cover of Wild Hundreds. And that's how True. that's how I got connected to him was through Nate. Um, and someone still cares about cover art. Yeah. Like I really, <laughs> I, really <laughs> I really care. I was like very. Uh, I mean, long story short, there's a poem that opens the book about uh, wolves, um, about wolves killing lions and taking over their own communities. And I really wanted to have a wolf or some kind of dog like on thing on the cover. And um, the press sent me some covers and they were fine, um, but I didn't love any of them. And then at the same time, uh, Nate sent me this picture or maybe shared a picture of what is the cover art now? Max Sansing's piece, which is like a, a young black child um, holding the jaws of a wolf. Um, and I loved it. And I like I emailed him instantly and he was just so cool about it. And uh, after the book came out, uh, he was like, very, he very shyly emailed me and was like, hey, can you like send me two copies and sign them? And I was like, absolutely. Um, so I love the cover. I feel like the cover has sold I think the book is sold really well. And I feel like the cover has a large part of that. Isn't it wild how much that does matter? Like, so we first met because we were on tour. I was on tour with the Breakbeat Poets book and we were in Connecticut and you came through and we've had gigs that happened exclusively because someone liked the cover of that book. Yeah. yeah. And like in for all the talk about like, like marketing and the, the campaign and the rollout and all that. And then even like then, it's also not the words that are inside. So it's neither like right. the quote content or the packaging. It's this other piece of art that you're like, I think this complements my voice well. Yeah. Um, how have you, uh, how have you seen, you, you mentioned that when we were driving over that the response to it has been really beautiful. Um, what are some like surprises or unexpected things that are conversations that have come up from it? So I think, and I don't, I don't like, so I'm, I'm struggling with this idea of like um, thinking about the book in terms of sales numbers, right? Because that's just not what my, I would thought I'd be thinking about when, but I also, I say that because I thought it would sell like 500 mm -hmm. copies, right? I thought it would be like something that my friends in Columbus would love and mm -hmm. like something that the like, you know, insular community of poets would love. Um, and to see it like do incredible in sales in, in spaces that aren't just, poetry spaces are great so that is a comforting thing is that there are discussions about my goal for the book was to have it um resonate in places that weren't just poetry places to have conversations mm -hmm. about um generational and life impacts of gentrification in places that weren't just like yeah if, if people are in poetry classes analyzing the craft that's great too but are people in other college classes talking about um the work that is actually in the book as far as um the social justice impacts of it and, and turning a lens towards history and gentrification and nostalgia and memory. So that's been cool. It's been really cool to see like, um, you know, writers I respect mm. um, and love and have been inspired by um, pushing themselves towards the book and picking it up and reading it. And who knows, maybe they, they hate it, but they're at least like taking pictures with it, which is cool. <laughs> um, like, I love this cover art at least. Yeah. At least they love the cover art. <laughs> and, I, and I am really thrilled about how it sits in more than anything. I'm thrilled with how it has so far sit in the um, history of Columbus literature, Columbus, mm -hmm. Ohio, where I'm from. I think it's so like, like that book is my book is like at the library <laughs> that I grew up going to, you know yeah. what I mean? Like down the street. And so that's really cool. Um, and I think that without, um, 
you know, and that library is in a gentrifying area. Right? right. And so there's just a lot of history that, that the book is, is, is fitting into that. I wanted it to. So let's talk a little bit about the, the framework uh, of the book, because I do think like so much of the work and, and the, the voices and the folks that we've connected with here on mm-hmm. the show, damn, uh, so much <laughs> of the folks that we've connected with, it's on airplane mode and it's still buzzed. Uh, so many of the folks that we've talked with on the show, you know, operate from the like place-based framework, right? And it's really, it's trying to root whether it's the artistic work or the organizing work or the thinking work and all the overlaps of those things in place. Um, and for many of them, it's where they currently live. Uh, I know for you being in different places and traveling, but it's still, you know, having it be so rooted in the city and having that be the thing that, or one of the things that's so exciting First off, like what's the framework of the book in relationship to the city? Um, so the book is plays out over. Um, so, OK, so f- to start, I, I listened to the, the ethos of the book was born. I listened to Good Kid, Mad City when it came out, like many people. Um, <laughs> and she was the only one with that. Flow. I, know. <laughs> I listened to Good Kid. I listened to a little album called Good Kid, Mad City. Maybe no one's heard of it. I'm sorry. What? Which <laughs> Kendrick Lamar. Oh. Yeah, he's a little known <laughs> underground rap artist. Um, no, and I was thinking like, um, and I was living in Columbus at the time and I thought, you know, why can't this kind of narrative be applied to a city like this, mm. right? Why can't um, this like kind of linear long form, though that was in music form, but like still like a long form linear narrative about the inner workings and architecture of a city, um, why does that have to be confined to the coasts or or even Chicago, right? Like this very, I think geographically we're very like coastal, right? So, you know, we have the South and the South narrative and the West Coast narrative and the East Coast narrative. But then there's the Midwest. And I think the Midwest is limited to um, people visualize like Chicago and sometimes Minneapolis, uh, and very briefly in early 2000s, St. Louis, thanks to Nelly. Um, or cornfields. Or cornfields. Or cornfields. Very rural life. Right, right, right. And I, so I wanted to like write about Columbus in a way that kind of stripped away that that idea. And so I wanted to make a book. So the book is laid out over four parts, kind of tracking the story of a single character that um, I do want to be clear and say the book's not an autobiography. I'd be like, <laughs> there are some stories in there that actually definitely certainly happened in my life. Um, but there are some stories that did not happen in my life. And so I um, kind of made a hybrid character. Um, and there are poems about the growth of this person in the, the changing of the city. And so the idea is that when the book begins and when the book ends, the city is in a vastly different place than it was. Mm. Um and in between, you get to see all the nuances of those changes and how those changes affect the people living in the city yeah. and the violence that comes with that and how that violence echoes down generations. Mm. So we, I, I quote this a bunch. We've done it. I've quoted it before. I read this book in college. It was a kind of semi-autobiographical, fictional memoir voice type situation. Yeah. Um, but the idea is, so the the main character is walking down the street that he grew up and he's saying everything looks different. But even if everything looked the same, it would still look different. Right. Um, For you in doing this kind of like digging through, whether it's your own memories or imagined memories, uh, what are the, what are the differences that feel the most jarring still to you or that you're still working to reconcile? Um, Well, I think that the thing that was jarring and remains jarring is that, right. I think at the core, I'm writing about a city that isn't like it was, Mm-hmm. You know, the, that I I'm writing about a city that very much isn't the city I grew up in in spots. Right. I can't. Um, and I did a lot of the writing for this book, not living in Columbus. I think maybe the first half of it was mm-hmm. written in Columbus and the rest was written. I live in Connecticut now. Right. And so I I did a lot of that writing um, strictly. Yeah. From memory of a place that I loved. And then I would have to go back to that place and realize that it's not that place anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, there was a point last year, or maybe it was the beginning of this year. No, I think it was late last year. There was a point late last year where I went home and I had just been home maybe three months before. And I went back home to a, a strip of, you know, strip of community where I had like had lived for years and I didn't recognize anything. You know, I, I didn't know where to like get a slice of pizza anymore. And I didn't know like, you know, the places that I loved were closed or moved or, you know. And so I think 
that's always really jarring for me because I think that um, the biggest victim of gentrification is, of course, uh, people, right? But I think it is, it's also like history. It's a great reminder. Right, yeah. I mean, but it's like, it's also like our history. I think that like, if you can't take people to where you're from, I was doing an interview, I tell this story a lot because I think it's like the most jarring. I was doing an interview in Columbus um, on the block where I grew up or near the block where I grew up and I was pointing out things and I was saying like, this is where I used to play basketball. Mm. This is where me and my friends would ride bikes. And the interviewer looked at me and said, well, this doesn't seem like that rough of an area at all. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. And so I, I think we're talking about empathy, right? And I think when you can't show someone where you're from, they lose a type of empathy for you, mm. right? They don't, your history is not something that they can fathom and therefore it becomes invalid. And so the, the, the level of empathy is lower. And that is a huge, another huge victim of gentrification. And in power dynamics, then it makes it easier for the person who's trying to figure out where you're from to, to be comfortable, be comfortable. with that yeah, erasure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. To be yeah. like, yet again, divorcing you from your history, from your context, from your family, from your block, right. from your place. Yeah, man. I mean, we, we talk, we end up, and it's, it's usually not on purpose, or sometimes it's not on purpose. We end up talking about gentrification a lot on this show, because I think it's like a... a it's, I mean, it's heavily affecting Chicago. Yeah, Chicago yeah. Uh, but obviously the nation, right? Like it's a part of like a larger structural trend. Um, and, and it doesn't feel like, and we, and we talk about like kind of the human tragedy of just like taking someone's space, uh, but we don't really talk about it like in the historical context of displacement and what that does to yeah. community. Uh, and also like the direct relationship between place and displacement and violence. Yep. Right. And, and reading a lot of your work, I think you have a very like intimate and, and very human take on violence and how that is a part of just like our everyday culture. Um, and so in going back home in relationship to everything that's happening in every place that isn't home for you, like how, how are you, you know, how, how are you kind of like wrestling right now with that feeling of, of displacement in relationship to a to a Darren Wilson or, or to all that is going on that is kind of like at the tip of our tongues, yeah. like politically and socially? Or, I mean, Tyree King, right? Like yeah. Tyree, I was in Columbus. I was at, I was home uh, the, the night Tyree King was killed. You know, I woke up in the morning and uh, the hashtag on the internet was a name that belonged to my city. And I was in that city, you know, I was visiting. Mm. Um, and that in leaving was difficult, like leaving to go elsewhere was difficult because it felt um, as someone who like it believed myself to be um, justice minded and activist minded. Right. Um, and I, as someone who believes that we all have our place in the movement, Right. And even if that is just archiving the movement, um, it was hard for me to leave Columbus then. And it's hard. It's still hard now to think about the fact that um, there are people are really on the front lines there. Right. And, and all over the country. Right. And activated and excited in moving towards something greater than themselves. Um, and to have. um police violence happen in a city where you live and then have to leave it. I mean, you, it, it, it creates an even larger distance when you're, mm. when it folds into the greater narrative of this is just a machine that keeps kind of swallowing. And you're like, no, that's like where I played catch with my friend. It's like, this, right, is, yeah. this isn't some example of some narrative. This is like literally. It's real. Where yeah. I mean, he was, he was murdered on a block, not far from a block where I've, where I played with my friends, like literally right. played with my friends. So it's, you know, I, I think, um, and I wrote a thing about um, when it happens in, in the city you're from, right? Because it's a different thing. It's completely, it made me look at how I have discussed this type yeah. of violence in other cities and really take, like, hold myself accountable to being better at that, right? It's one of the things that I think about a lot here, just because being in Chicago, the the loaded language of even mentioning the city on a national scale is so, yeah. uh, you know, it's awful. Yeah, it's <laughs> the way that it gets used as basically as propaganda, right? And so it doesn't mean like, 
it's it, it's part of this effort to show the range of what it means to be alive, right? And to, right. to make space for all of the different versions of that as opposed to like just letting the code word play out. I mean, and I'm a transplant, right? And mm. I still feel angry and frustrated and pained at that for you. Like at this point, I feel like, Dame, you probably just tune out. You just know how to check it off with the rest <laughs> of the coded language. Yeah. But like, how does it make you feel when you hear that? The the whole Chicago thing? I yeah, mean, like when Trump's like, but the inner yeah. cities of Chicago. I mean, and the- it, 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 it motivates yeah. me personally uh, because I think the like scratching at that at that contradiction gets to the heart of why he's so dangerous or why he's so accurate, really. I think he's actually like a really honest reflection of American political thought. Of course. Um, and, and so the fact that, you know, the, the city that has been the most segregated and in many ways been like the most defunded then becomes the excuse for more policing. The most police city becomes the excuse for more policing. Right. It's kind of like the most American thing to do. Um, so like, I almost, is like, emotionally painful as it is when you first hear it because it's like nah these are real kids dying and you don't know what you're talking about there's almost something like exciting about not exciting but there's like there is work to be done right like if this is the example and spike lee comes here and makes a bullshit movie to like make himself feel better right like using that landscape in the way that a poem does right Right. like using that landscape to change political thought I think has like is is very fertile ground Um, so I think that's why part of why the Chicago movement is so active because as we are we are resisting state violence and like kind of what is known as like the mecca of the effect of state violence right yes no it's the impact of state violence like literally played out throughout the in in and and it's all there, right? The gentrification and the segregation of the city and the, yeah, I mean. And the direct the divestment and, and the teachers and yeah. the schools being closed and the mental. Yeah, the stuff that literally, if yeah. you want to hear about any of that, listen to the first yeah. 61 episodes. All of them. Let's not do it too much. What, <laughs> what you listening to right now? Let's just like, <laughs> let's just change it up. Like you um, said you was checking out Chance but recently, but, but, but oh, what are yeah. you listening to? So I, I'm listening to a lot of stuff because part of my <laughs> life gig, is, yeah. is my like writing about music. So uh, I'm listening to Gallant who's a great, great, great R&B singer. It's been a great year for R&B. Um, it's been a long time since that's been said. Actually, I know. let's let's do it right now. So we we have a few games that we play here. Okay. Um, and we've taken a few weeks off on some of these games. And I'm going to stop you in the middle of your sentence and play right. one of the most important games in the history of Ergo um, and put you right on the spot. And it's called Beef with an R&B Singer. Okay. <laughs> so it's all, you know, here we're, we're about accountability. Good. Uh, and I think Excellent. that, that as a genre, R&B has started to run amok a little bit. Uh, you think now, currently? Maybe not. Let's say the last, the last, uh, the last several years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Without a and, doubt. and I think a part of it is like the lack of accountability, right? Absolutely. Like I saw your piece around like Drake and Meek Mill, right? And yeah, like yeah. if you do some whack shit as a rapper, everybody's going to call you out, right? Yeah, like, it doesn't always have the impact. But it, but but, it corrects but it, the genre corrects overall, the genre. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There will be um, a vocal response. Yeah. And I don't think that, that R&B gets that response. And I think it's kind of like gone off the rails. I mean, there's other factors. So we yeah. every, well, not anymore, but almost every week, we put people on the spot and say, you have to start beef with an R&B singer, a group from any R. Era. Kelly. R. R. Kelly, yes. He, he wow. actually is the reason why we created yeah. the game. But if you want me to choose a different one, I mean, R. Kelly is... Yeah, like, we can start there and then add an honorary mention. Like, I would maybe fist fight R. Kelly. Yeah. <laughs> R. Kelly's R. Kelly's fuck shit isn't hanging from the rafters of this yeah. game. Yeah, yeah, I mean, he's like, definitely in the Hall of Fame. Would be like, fuck R. Kelly. Uh, like, full stop. Fuck R. Kelly. <laughs> do you have um, any, like... I any like, other ones? I like to add nuance to the fuck R. Kelly because I think there's, like, the obvious, but I think each person has their own little piece and then an honorable mention if you have one. And you can go back, too, like... So so like, we go back to Motown, you know what I'm saying? Like, Beef with an RBR is not R. Kelly. Okay. Um, I think so. Um, without <laughs> Beef is okay. So it can be out of love. I want to be, I want to be clear because I feel like Beef, at least in a lot of communities, has a connotation of violence. And I want to be clear it's like I'm going to name some women and I don't have any, or a woman, and I don't have any violent feelings towards this woman. We appreciate that. Uh, at all. <laughs> but just like beef. Like, and I don't, I never really fuck with Diana Ross a whole lot. <laughs> yeah. um, there we go. That's what I'm talking about. I appreciate about. I like the other, burr, like, burr, burr. <laughs> I liked uh, Florence Ballard a lot. You know what I mean? Like, growing up with the Supremes, I was like, that's the voice. You know what I mean? It mm-hmm. felt like Diana Ross is coasting. And like, <laughs> and the Wiz is like low key, like black people, I think, gotta be honest about the fact the Wiz is low key trash you know what I mean like, <laughs> or she at least I don't, wasn't I think, that strong I think the I Wiz in general film. <laughs> is like not a good like I watched the Wiz recently not that like new new shit they put out I watched like the yeah. the like the throwback yeah. one and I was like 
this isn't good, man. Like, wow. Michael Jackson is Michael Jackson. Yeah. You know and what like I mean? like the Alvin Ailey. Yeah, yeah, Alvin Ailey joint is yeah. good, but man. You like, think that it just didn't hold up? Like, it doesn't I don't think it holds up. Yeah. So, yeah, maybe I shouldn't say and the I think Diana Ross overall hasn't held up for me. Yeah. I think I try to be like a... I, I like to look in the history of black music yeah. and she just, whenever she, she comes across, it doesn't, it doesn't do it for me. But I, I also, she gets like the crown for some reason that I don't understand. I feel like I should pick someone else. I, so I never also, <laughs> uh, Mike, Mike, uh, Michael McCary from boys to men, the deep voice dude. <laughs> Cause I feel like he's like, <laughs> like straight up, like a lot of his, uh, He's like really emotionally abusive, you know what I'm saying? Like a lot of his like little monologues, some shits is like real emotionally abusive. Like if you go back and like speaking of things that don't hold up, I just up, love like that you, you know. Back. Do you know other boys to men artists by yeah, members by like name? Wanye, Sean Stockman. You know what I mean? Like this is the first time we've ever played with someone who is a professional music critic <laughs> who has like a body of knowledge. And I like boys to men. I mean, they have so many hits right but like yeah if you like listen to those monologues now those shits is like my dude is like really just emotionally abusive yeah, i like it i like this all is, the way this through. is what the, we needed this is the exact point of beef with an r&b singer is exactly what you just yeah. did thank you so much that, I was this like, is great i feel yeah. such like, a little I'm, I'm like very like tongue-in-cheek about it and i'm like silly as if i don't like r&b but i think it's important because it is like the music of emotion. Yeah. And I think it's become like so manufactured artificial and obviously like hyper patriarchal in a way that is not as like obvious as hip hop. And I think there was some like benefit to the blatantness of right. hip hop that can allow us to critique it. But with R and B it's like, oh I'm gonna sell you this like dream. Yeah. And it's like a bunch of bullshit. Right. Like Chris Brown's entire like last seven years, you know what I'm saying? So I appreciate I appreciate you going to Boys to Men. I'm waiting for somebody to bring Cisco into the mix. I feel like we need to have Cisco was recently in Columbus. He recently did a live performance oh no. in Columbus. Oh no. I wasn't he there. He charges more to do the thong song. He charges a lot. Yeah, that is true. He will like not do it. That this is, is very accurate. This is like, and I think I've said this on the show. If you book Jimmy JJ Walker for a show, he has one price and then a second price if you want him to say dynamite. Really? Yeah. Is he from here? He's from here, right? I believe I so. I don't know. I'm not sure. I think JJ Walker's. Yeah. That might be so. That might be do you, so. Do you get him at the Dynamite price? This is you, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, Would I, you pay the extra? I think it's a good year. I mean, R and B or soul or whatever you want to call it. I mean, you know, um, I'm, I'm. I don't have to say this to y'all, but but shout out to the dearest homie Jamila Woods. You know, oh, what yeah, I mean, like, yeah, yeah. Um, but and beyond that, there's just been a. I, so I think. There's this like small revival, and I think it's led by led by black women, which is great. Um, because I don't know if like I think a lot of the problems that R and B fell into was that it was so male dominated. After I mean, always right, like all of American music, obviously, or just America, or just America, right? <laughs> I mean, it's not like R and B is some like outlier. It's just a part of the. But I think like the excite the exciting black women who are making. Like King is just a wonderful group. Um, and, and yeah, like these artists may not sell millions of records, right? But I think R&B is not at a point, R&B or soul is not at a point where it's going to sell a million records Also, anymore, no right? one is. Yeah. I mean, well, Solange just went number one. Yeah, I mean, Solange went number one. That's yeah. fair. And, and that, that was and a... she kind of had like, I mean, obviously Beyonce is your sister, so how underground can you be? But more or less but from more, an underground yeah. platform. I mean, I don't work. think, yeah, she didn't like lean on that. You know what I mean? She didn't, yeah, of course she's related to Beyonce, but like... It's not like that was a part of the marketing camp. I mean, it's just a good record. You know what I mean? Like all the way through, like sprawling and exhausting in a really good way. Like, no, with, like I finished the record and felt like I went on like a great run, not exhausting in the way that like views was exhausting. You know what I mean? We're like, I listened to like 10 tracks and I was like, shit, there's 10 more left. You know what I mean? I got to like power through. It was like the worst. Hip, it was like the worst hypno hypnosis session of all. Cause everything yeah. said the drums, like all sounded the same. Yeah. And it just felt like I was watching the pendulum swing back it's and like, forth in front of my eyes with just like bullshit being talked on top. Yeah. I haven't been able to listen to that album fully still. And I'm like a fairly unapologetic Drake fan. I think Drake's all right. Um, what? Really? Yeah. Unapologetic Drake fan? No, I won't apologize for the fact that Are I you? am a fan. Not I will. I, I will. I didn't, I didn't know. I didn't know that that you like. Oh, you're really uptight about this. I'm not uptight, but I just I didn't know <laughs> you that you uptight. you identify like that's a strong identity to have. Like, do you not take it? You don't like Drake? I do not, man. This is big. I have an appreciation. No, I I, I was a Drake fan, right? Like, what in made the way you, that you, what made you stop? Um, I think he's kind of like representative of like the dangers of mainstream and radical art like like he's basically like he's kind of you know 
like Justin Bieber and blackface a little bit. Like he he is in a lot of ways appropriative. Um, and I really, I, I'm, I'm trying not to like bite your lines. I just read your piece about him. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm trying to like get back to like my original thought. There's um, a wonderful writer whose name escapes me. But, 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 but I think he's he's selling the tropes that will work so that he can be as marketable as possible and be the the salesman of, of black pop black culture to popular culture. All that so, aside, which is fair. Do you think he can rap or do you not think he can? Oh, rap? Absolutely. I think he can rap, but I think he has actually, he intentionally does not rap well. I think he'll, I think he'll have bad vocals on songs that become hits and he'll like, Oh, let me keep trying to do that. And I think he'll like pull back on cadences or make punchlines that are extra simple in a way that is not like I'm trying to, makes simple art for an intentional sake. Right. It's like, I'm trying to sell McDonald's French fries. So it's so not, I will put whatever chemical on here to make them addictive. <laughs> so it's not Drake the rapper you have a problem with. It's Drake the artist. It's it's a vision. It's Drake, so, yeah. Drake the product. Yeah. Drake the product of Yeah, because I mean, in every song that I hate, there's a moment where I'm like, okay, that was really good. And yeah. just like a catchy right. rhythmic. Sounds I think he, I think yeah. he like has a way of like using his voice that is like obviously works, right? He's like, got a good ear, when, I think. When he comes on a track, even though it's like, oh, here come this nigga. It's like, oh, it's, this, the song is a little bit hotter than it just was. Yeah, it's the opposite of Big Sean, which is, uh, uh, this is one of my favorite lines, which is when it says featuring Big Sean, it means the song's going to be great and he's going to ruin it. No. That's not, he goes too hard on Big Sean. No, I think, I so the, here's the, th- I think I, what I like about Big Sean is this. Uh, he is very consistent, right? That doesn't mean he's good. He's consistently okay. And I think that is like, so I think the thing that we have to that I think about is with rappers is it's like not all rappers can be great, right? Like you need rapper. <laughs> like many, many, many right. rappers are not great. There are maybe like five to ten great rappers. Most rappers have always not been yeah. great too in every era. In every era. So it's like you need a rapper who's just like so so Big Sean, I think not eight times out of ten, you're gonna get a verse that's just fine. Like he's <laughs> not gonna ruin a song. For me at least, he's mm-hmm. gonna be just okay. The ninth time you get a Big Sean verse, it's going to be a phenomenal verse. Like mm-hmm. maybe him on uh, that Khaled, that, that DJ Khaled track with Kendrick, mm-hmm. where he just yeah. like, holy key, where he just yeah, like yeah. lost his mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The 10th time you're going to get a really bad Big Sean verse. <laughs> like a really, really unforgivable. Oh, yeah. But it's because of his format, right? He's like a punchline rapper. Right. And when you are a punchline rapper... When you base your entire like rhyme structure off of punchlines, right. you're bound to have some awful verses. Like, like. every comic who <laughs> yeah. and not every punchline is gonna hit. Yeah. So I wanna take two steps back because I also oh, damn, like I was gonna take three steps forward. <laughs> <laughs> well let's let's go no, back let's two it, and then five. I, first like of all, life. this is like my favorite thing to do in the world. Right? And I see like how comfortably we felt, you know. I like that. Yeah, all the talks like, about poems and social justice was bullshit. We just wanted to get in here and like talk shit about music. rappers and pop culture with but a real because, critic. Yeah, I mean, it's nice to do it with someone who like has the tool and like has a role where like you are like a thoughtful critic because I think I often struggle, especially in regard to hip hop, with like one the like he's trash critique, which I just gave, Uh, but it's, it's like kind of a knee jerk, but also like just in general, like there was a time once upon a time I, I fancied myself a music writer. Yeah. Like I wrote album reviews for a blog and I like, was like, Oh, that's like, I'm going to be a music journalist. Um, yeah, in my head too, I definitely thought I was going to analyze hip hop. I tried and then to make it, my sociology papers about <laughs> and, shit. and that is all well and good. But I think like so much of that, like I got to a point basically where I got disillusioned because most folks don't do what you do. Um, I feel like, and I'm curious what your thoughts are on this. So I'm going to like project my thoughts and then we'll okay. see what, what hits. But like, basically there was a time when people couldn't just hear the song. So like having someone describe what a song sounded like right. was actually worthwhile because yeah. they were de- deciding whether or not to buy it. Now anyone can just hear the song. There's no, that's that role isn't needed anymore. Right. So the good music writing that I see is people talking about like the, Im- not just like the, what this means in the world, but like literally like what's the feeling it creates for me. And then interrogating why that feeling exists and right. making those kinds of connections. Um, that's the role that I like in the writing of yours beyond the poems, more on the music and that I've seen you do. That's what I love about it. Um, and I'm curious, like for you, like what's the framework? What do you think about your, like what, how do you imagine your relationship to critiquing music? So I think um, a big thing I try to do. So there's a performance 
the internet is a performance, right? And so that is why um, the critic has died in the sense, like the need for the critic to review an album is, is dying down because in a half an hour after an album's released, someone's going to declare it trash or great or flawless or, you know what I mean? And we do that to artists too. We, and once artists get that label, it's hard to shake. You look at someone like um, Wale, right? <laughs> Who, <laughs> I prefer not to. <laughs> but I mean, the yeah, thing is, I mean, for a very long time, like people Life thought Wale them. could rap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, that's just like a fact. You know what I mean? Like that's a, a flat out fact. <laughs> they kept giving him verses. For a long time. And then. I and think then, it was the poet thing. that, that really Yeah. <laughs> and then people decided Wale was trash. And now he cannot shake that. He can. He put out last year a like complex, thoughtful flawed album yeah but an album that was like a big swing that did a lot of cool shit and no one cared because the internet had decided he's trash and so in my work i try to like not really unpack why that happens because i think we know why that happens but i i try to like get people to dial it down right to step back Hmm. and give shit a try that they've already dismissed because or or give things all I can say is here's why this song moved me. And I think that if you opened, if you like open that door a little bit wider for yourself, you might see this too. And if you don't, that's fine. But like, mm. if it moved me this way, surely it has that same possibility. Yeah. I mean, some, some, I mean, I think it speaks to the violence of our culture. I think violence is probably going to be just like a common thread. Yeah. yeah. You know, Cause it's America, you know, right, right. but, but that's something I've tried to be more careful of. Even, even in my criticism of Drake, I think it is important. <laughs> Cause I think, like the top rapper, there's like a, a yeah. There's a specific your responsibility. Critique, your critique was very thoughtful. Though. Yeah, your yeah. Critique was like uh, very, but like the impact that it has on people, right? Like yeah. What that does, and when you dismiss that, there is almost like you are not only dismissing the artist value, but like people's like human emotion that if they relate to this, if they're moved. So I, I try to be more careful in that. But like, do you ever? see that sometimes it is less about the artist as it is about people just liking to dismiss each other. Oh, like, of course. Yeah, yeah. We love binaries, right? And we love drawing these lines. And so it is, it's people love being able to just say, this artist is bad. Mm. This artist is great. I'm going to love this artist and never give this artist time of day. And it becomes like your identity. Also. Right. It's like, I like, I'm a, this guy. Right. I'm a, yeah. in, in, I mean, and I have, on any given day, and I want to be clear and say that I, I don't get nearly the amount of Twitter harassment that some of my peers uh, <laughs> get, mainly mainly women, mainly women of color. Um, but because most of my Twitter, you know, I get like Taylor Swift fans mm-hmm. or like pop music fans just like harassing me on Twitter about <laughs> why I didn't like this song, but like this song. What's and the I, most cold-blooded Taylor Swift fan <laughs> criticism you've got? Because it's not, I feel like they're not coming with like super hateful language or maybe they are. No, they hate, they hate me. <laughs> they, they hate me. Do they want and, you to die? I mean, yeah, they, but not, maybe not die. But, <laughs> but I, but I also like try to understand that like these are children. <laughs> yeah. They're passionate, right? They're passionate about the shit they love and that is not how my passion manifested itself when I was young, but I didn't have Twitter when I was right. 16 or 17 or eight, whatever, you know, it might've been, I was, I'm a music fan. Right? right. And so I get excited about artists in that same way. Right. Um, do I think there are like healthier ways to manifest that joy? Sure. But like, am I also going to get tied into knots over a teenager telling me they hate everything I write? <laughs> Probably not. Um, yeah. But I, but I do think, yeah, I mean, it becomes an identity, right? It becomes your identity is so wrapped up in the musician and the musician's career that you become invested in their doing well. Um, and you will, if if them doing well means you dismiss a whole group of other musicians and that's what you do. And I, I think that's that's fine. That's part of the machine. But I think in my writing, I try to like offer another, another option, another way out. Yeah, I mean, that kind of dialing it back as you framed it and that, that other option for a way to like interact with things that either you love or you're trying to figure out how you feel about. Uh, I just, I'm thinking about it in relation to your work as a poet and the way that you kind of centered, like centered empathy in it all. Uh, Are there in the music writing role, are there itches that that scratches that you can't get in poetry or like basically do you think of it as kind of like all part of one whole of you as a writer or you as a person, or do you imagine kind of as like different roles and different relationships to people? Now I think it has to be different. Um, initially 
it, it did not feel different. Initially, the, it felt all. Um, so last year, last summer. Yeah, the beginning of last summer, I wrote this thing about Trap Queen. Um, that was. I love this piece. Oh, it's great. That was uh, prompted by. Have you had Eve on the show? Yeah. Has she told this story? No. She was episode eight, though. She Uh, was early in the game. So, like, this was prompted by Eve Ewing. Um, Shout out to her. Shout out to Eve Ewing. Super We were at a, like, we were at a a cookout. um, And she was just, like, you know, talking excitedly about Trap Queen. It, like, played at this cookout we were at. Um, And she mentioned this thing about how, like, it's it's doing well on the charts, perhaps, because at the core, it's a love song. And I was like, that's brilliant. Like, we should, like, I should write about this. She was like, you should, you should write about this. <laughs> She's so encouraging. Uh, and I was like very much as so I went home that night and wrote this thing that did begin as a poem and then became something else. And then mm. it ended up doing whatever, like being spread all over. And, and so what I'm, what I mean to say is like shortly after that, I believed in my music writing, I believed writing about music and writing poems were the same thing. I believed I could do the same thing within those spaces. Um, now I think I'm a little more intentional about way the ways in which I approach each. Mm. Um, I think I no longer sit down to write like a, like if I'm writing a, an essay about Drake, for example, right. I don't approach that the same way as writing a poem about Drake. And I've done both, right. I've, I have both of those things in my catalog. Um, I got sonnets about Drake. <laughs> but I think a lot of, a lot of, he just takes up so much space. So you much see, space, you see what's happening? All, Even in this conversation, we have to keep coming back. Keep to, talking about Drake. Ah. But I, but I think a, a real thing is like when I write poems, the poem about Drake is trying to find a way to pull him away from the reader, right? Mm-hmm. The essay about Drake is trying to find the reader to, to pull the poem closer to the reader. So when I write poems, I am also often trying to write a way into myself and using anything else and anyone else as a vehicle. Mm. Um, be that Drake, be that like the Chicago Bulls, be that, you know, whatever. When I'm writing about music, it's irresponsible, I think, to do that for me. It's irresponsible Why? to say like, because I'm not, that's less for myself, right? Mm. I have poems that people don't ever see or get to hear. And if, and if I write a poem that is solely about me trying to figure myself out, this like internal thing, people will reward that, right? In poetry that is rewarded. I, I feel like the music writer, I feel like if I truly want people to imagine a world in which they can love music that they didn't think they could love, mm. I have to meet them halfway. Mm-hmm. And in doing that, I have to be a little more outside of myself. I, I want to like stop while you're talking about audience a little bit and and, and dig deeper because we. I mean, I don't even know if we mentioned it, but the fact that you write for MTV, I do, and and I really want to explore either how you came to that platform or or, or how you like maneuver in that space because um, I I think the pieces are like really beautiful um, and to be talking about things such as joy or pain and depression or mental health or blackness or marginalization right. um, on the, the, you know, arguably the biggest pop culture platform in our lifetime. Right. in this kind of like transition of new media. I, I, I just, I was just reading it like, wow, how does he, how is he allowed to do this? Yeah. It's on weird, TV? isn't it? How, who is reading this? Like are like, <laughs> like white kids read this shit? Like absolutely. absolutely <laughs> yeah, of course. Cause of it's tv.com. And so I just, uh, you know, I'm not trying to like get you to like talk bad about your bosses or get you a job. No, stuff I have all, the but best bosses. But that's just such an interesting contradiction that I, I'm yeah. just curious how that works internally. We have another segment called beef with Viacom and Beef with Viacom. <laughs> no, I, so I, I think one, I'm like incredibly lucky. And it doesn't feel real often that I can write, that I can like, you know, like submit 2,500 words on like anxiety and depression in hip hop and have an editor be like, this is great. I have to just shout out to, to Jessica Hopper, who is a Chicagoan, who is a brilliant music critic who I have been a fan of forever, right? Like I've been a fan of her for a lot of years. Um to a lot of music nerds in the Midwest, like she was like our, our critic. Right. And so shortly after the aforementioned trap queen piece, I got an email from her. Uh, she was a pitchfork at the time. And she was like, Hey, uh, just very casually, like, Hey, you want to write a couple of things for pitchfork? 
And it was weird for me because I was like, I got to play it cool, right? Like, this is a person who I like know. <laughs> I know their work and like I'm a fan of their work, but I had to be like, oh, yeah, yeah, Absolutely. sure. Why not? Yeah, send, send me an email. <laughs> yeah, like maybe I'll write a thing. Who knows? You know, no big deal. Um, and then I wrote a few things for Pitchfork, um, one of them about punk rock and race, um, which is a big intersection in my poetry. Um, and then shortly after that, she went to, you know, like revamp MTV News. And was like, do you want to do you want to come along? And it was like, we're gonna like, we're we're gonna redo this MTV thing. We're gonna really write great music journalism. And I was like, I'm in. And then so, my first piece for MTV was this piece I wrote. I went to go see Bruce Springsteen in Jersey, and the day before I was in Ferguson, and I wrote this like sprawling piece about like the intersect and like at the concert. And I remember texting friends I'm, I, was, I was texting with my friends like i'm at the springsteen concert and the only other black people i see are like performing labor they're like working uh, so i wrote this like and i love bruce springsteen love bruce springsteen so much and i wrote this sprawling thing about like springsteen and race and work and protest mm. and i was like well i'm gonna submit this to mtv as my first thing and like if it doesn't fly then maybe <laughs> this was wasn't it. the move and they like got it and she like looked at it and she was like this is perfect i didn't edit a word and so i felt like that was when i felt like i was really at home right, right. i felt like i really had a permission to write the way i write right and you don't even you don't even have to play the like the game of like, well, they haven't cut canceled this yet. Like Chappelle came out the second episode of Chappelle show or no, after the first sketch, it was yeah. like, well, we haven't been canceled yet. Haven't and it like became yet. a thing. You don't even have to play that. Cause you know, for whatever reason, and I, I like you, you, you framed it as like something that's luck. But, and I, I like the gratefulness of it, but it's also like the time we live in and the space that you've carved through your work. Like you do actually have support. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of an amazing thing. I'm thinking a little bit about like, you mentioned the, like the punk rock or writing about Springsteen, um, maybe less so at MTV because it sounds like they're kind of letting you write your, what you want to write. But it, at other moments, have you felt like, basically have you felt like white editors look to you and be like, be the hip hop critic? Like when that, when the new whatever comes out, are they right. like, hey, can this is, they throw it your way automatically? So at MTV, I'm the most fortunate because that, like, like you said, like that legit would not happen. Um, or because I think, you know, the editors at MTV have a feel for, for my writing. And so when I'm suggested something, it's often like, here's something I think you'd like, like, like here's like, for example, a couple of weeks ago, I wrote about Nirvana's, uh, they suggested I write about Nirvana's, uh, 25 year anniversary for Nevermind because I love more than anything <laughs> writing about nostalgia in music so that was just a perfect fit but i and so i've been lucky to not have too many editors come at me like that you know i think um maybe it's because there's one i love writing about hip-hop you know i i could i think sometimes i love talking about hip-hop more than i love writing about it because it's just more i'm more fluent there it's more I get so excited when I write about it that I tend to overwrite or tend to like lean into the wrong things. So I want to say so many things at once. So I think editors can like editors who are familiar with my like full body of work and not just like, I saw this one thing, you know, are, are more interested in like, you know, editors will ask me to write about, I would say like soul and punk more than mm-hmm. hip hop, but that doesn't mean I don't love, I love writing about hip hop. It's just, you know, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm starting because there's like, you're kind of like, sitting at a really interesting intersection and i'm wondering if you're starting to like feel some of that history as a writer and also as someone a part of hip-hop culture because i think kind of like one of the oldest critiques you know is rooted in like baldwin or even coates gets tonight coates gets it a lot of like writing to the white gaze yeah in the same way that hip-hop is often having to like deal with with the tension of trying to be authentic but also performing to the white gaze and you're like writing about hip-hop in some ways for mtv right right? and and so how do you but your your shit comes off so like pleasantly radical right like and not even like (laughs) here why do you like you need to see this it felt like man you you weren't even writing to them it felt like a a, you know something that was more indie yeah and so and so how do you do you feel some of that tension of like how do i frame this audience or do you even have an intention of audience when you're writing so i think that ultimately and maybe this is unfair and maybe this is a small window, but I feel like I'm writing for the black people who grew up like I grew up, right? The black kids who were like into punk, but didn't have anyone writing to them. Like I grew up on in, at this intersection of hip hop and punk in the Midwest. And 
there was a ton of hip hop for me, but there was less punk for me. And so, and there was less rock for me and there was less like, you know, and so if I can write about, if I can write about Springsteen and insert all of these things about Ferguson in protest and have like, you know, white rock people be like, whoa, that really blew my mind. You know what I mean? Then <laughs> that's, I feel like that's an accomplishment. I'm not writing that to them or for them. I'm writing that for the people who, you know, the, the black kids who like rock. Yeah. You're creating the space. The, yeah. That, I'm creating the space that, that I needed, that you needed, that I needed yeah. when I was younger. And so that is my intention. You know, I wrote about, I write, anytime I write about, I wrote about an album, um, the Wonder Years album. I love the band, the Wonder Years. They're a pop punk band from um, Philly. And I wrote about the 10 year anniversary of their album, Suburbia, I Love You, But You're Bringing Me Down. And it's all about the suburbs, right? And I, instead of like putting this gaze on the suburbs, I talked about how I lived near a suburb as a kid and my friends died violently. And, and, all, and, and I think it's important to insert those things, right? I think it's important to talk about those things because there's the expectation of, of music journalism that we only talk about, people only want to read about what they think they're signing up for, right? It's, it's very much like the stick to sports thing that we do with athletes. Um, but I don't, if my work is radical in any way, it's that I refuse to do that because I have, you know, I grew up in a way that where I didn't see my stories told. And so I, I think it's, if this is a way where I can like tell a small part of my story almost every week on a platform like MTV and I have editors who are like so welcoming of that and so encouraging, then I have to do it now. I might not ever have a chance. You know what I mean? Like I might not have a chance to do this again in my life. Yeah. How have you found in the time that you've been there, how has it impacted your poetry being like just uh, the, you know, things have in the last year since that I would imagine since some of those doors open, things have opened up a little bit or changed. Are you talking yeah. about the book getting a different response? Maybe partially as a result of that. How has it changed even just how you sit down to write poems? I think that, so I'm a lot more, um, intentional with my writing time um and i know now what does that mean so i know now what my days look like right or i know what my days demand of me as a writer and sometimes it demands me writing 2500 words and sometimes it demands me like editing and in there i need to find time to write poems i don't need to write every day i don't need to write a poem a day i don't need to write a poem a week, but I need to be able to know that I could if I wanted to. Mm. Um, and more than that, more importantly, I need to be okay with that if I don't, right? I need to be okay mm. with the idea of maybe I don't get to a poem today, or maybe I start a poem today and finish it tomorrow. Um, my process is slower but sharper, I think. Mm. Um, whereas before, you know, before I wrote for, before I was writing about music, before I was like writing at MTV, I was just like, you know, home brewing in my head. Let me throw it down on paper. There it is. I'm going to read this at a, you know, I'm going to read this at an open mic. I'm going to send it to a journal. Um, now my process is a lot slower in settling into, gosh, I felt like I had to get the first book out, right? Mm-hmm. Like I felt like I had to write the book, throw everything I had into the book and get it out in the world. And now I'm like, I can like sit on a second mm-hmm. book of poems for as long as I want to yeah, and just see what comes in like, I'm now more interested in like seeing where the work takes me. I, in the middle of working on the crown ain't worth much. I really learned that poems like tell you where they want to go. They tell you how they want to live, at least for me. And I am so much more interested in that process in like letting the work lead me instead of me trying to like pull the work, you know, it's like trying to ride a donkey you know, or trying to like pull a donkey with you. Like you just got to wait for it to be ready. So what are you feeling as you're being pulled now? Like, what are you feeling really excited about? So I have this like really weird second manuscript that I'm working on. Um, a poem that that a lot of people liked got pulled from my manuscript because it didn't fit. I have a poem called Ode to Biggie Smalls Ending in Gold. And I had to pull it from the crown. It worth much because I love the poem, but it like just didn't fit with the narrative. It just like was like clunky. Um, there was like no section it fit in properly. There were too many of the odes, odes in the book already because the book has like seven to eight of those. Mm. Um, and I pulled it and I was like agonizing over it. And my friend was like that, that, but that poem is like an entire like whole thing of its own. So I'm working on this book called Ohio and the Night Biggie Died, which is a mm. book of poems that um, take place over an evening. So it's like chronologically laid out over the course of hours. There's a lot of weird shit going on in it. I've wrote this series of poems where um, 
the voice is the ghost of Marvin Gaye. So the ghost of Marvin Gaye kind of narrates the the book mm. and, and it might become nothing, right? Like I'm like, <laughs> I'm like 25 poems into it. It might be like legitimately nothing. It might be this like wacky idea I had that I put too much time into, That's but I so really, fun though. it's really fun. Yeah. And I, and I feel less pressure now. I think like the fact, so a really good thing about the crown ain't worth much doing well is that I know for a fact that someone will, want me to write another book of poems, right? (laughs) Like there are people, there's someone who will publish another book of poems of mine. Before the book came out, I had no idea. I thought like this shit could drop and like no one will fuck with it. And then it'll be like, can I curse? I cursed a lot. Sorry. We got beef with the FCC. (laughs) It'll be on the radio. We'll work through it. all. be okay. But yeah. So before the book came out, I was like, no one's going to rock with this and no one will want me to write another book of poems. But the fact that there are people who will want that uh, is encouraging. And so Mm -hmm. I'm, kicking around that idea i have a chapbook of poems coming out next year um i wrote all these poems um after the crown ain't worth much which was like devastating and sad and depressing to write as an exercise to crawl out of that sadness i wrote a bunch of poems that were inspired by songs i didn't know were about sex when i first heard them um it started it like that's what's up that's it started wrong. as like a joke and then i got like five poems in and i was like i'm gonna keep going and i got 10 and i got 20 and then i uh and then it, it's it amazing how often that happens yeah i mean and it's also a very common trope once you see the like thinly veiled metaphor you're like how did i not like yeah i heard the song um i, I was driving around i was on the radio uh sweet cherry pie you know that song oh yeah warrant yeah yeah, yeah that is a song about a vagina wholeheartedly about a vagina just clearly i think i equally love like the songs people don't realize are about drug dealing that also is good or or about getting high yeah yeah drug related shout out to drums broccoli drums yeah i was gonna say drums (laughs) like that song's like a hit and people don't know but i I think the songs i mean the the songs with the, the vague metaphors they always appeal to me it started out like i wrote a poem about the song too close by next um, which is a song about having an erection on the dance floor. Yeah, yeah, right. Which is it, very odd. it was like 18 months ago. Yeah, like, and then like I saw the video. It's like this song's about fucking like, in the bathroom. Like, <laughs> which like I've never. I didn't know that having an erection on the dance floor was such a problem that it warranted a pop song. Yeah. I, and like that that joint is like, it's like stuck with us. Too. Yeah, like, it's in the can. It's, it's, it's in the canon. Yeah, right? absolutely. It's the canon like, every American. year that song gets played. That, that song, song lasts. That song played at like my eighth grade dance. Right, <laughs> which. Apropos. Which, yeah, I mean, that is, I feel like if that were to be a problem at a dance, that is the yeah. prime year. That's when you got to make room That's for Jesus. That's when you really got to make room for Jesus. I mean, that is the uh, 13-year-olds at a, at a dance. Oh, that is day, when the... Every day I wake up grateful I'm not 13. Anymore. Yeah, sewing season. Um, <laughs> but that's cool, though. That's amazing. And, and that you're kind of just playing with that and having fun with that. Yeah. And so I've, I've written a lot of poems since the book. And that that feels good. I also thought I would never write another poem again. I thought it was it. Something I like for this show to accomplish is people who are like in that zone, right? Like to be able to like just any idea you're able to kind of create around it or or do your work around. I like this show to kind of speak to those who are at that earlier stage where they're like, I don't know that a book of my poems will ever be published or... I don't even know if I can write this poem, like, like to like go back before you even have a book of poems to even try to curate or edit. Right. Um, how did you, what spaces, whether they were educational or otherwise or personal, like processes you use like hardcore as a writer that got you to the point of being comfortable to be able to like flow and create and, and exist kind of in your, in your truth. For oh, wow. Uh, well, I mean, like, first off, I'm from Columbus, Ohio, you know, so that is a community of, brilliant writers who push each other merely by existing you know like when i decided i wanted to write poems i had the access to the best writers in ohio just in my city you know telling me what to read and how to write how to become better um and i more than anything i i mean i took a whole year where i pretty much read more than I, you know, I always read more than I write, but I, I took a whole year where I like barely wrote a poem and just read poetry. Mm. You know, I don't, I don't have an MFA, uh, which like shout out to getting an MFA. I may get an MFA one day. I just am too busy now. Give that honorary MFA. Yeah. Get out the way. I the way maybe get an honorary MFA. I'm all about the honorary degree. Yeah. I'm I can't trying wait. to like, cop. I can't wait for people to give me fake. I feel like, <laughs> I feel like if I keep doing cool enough shit, then like right? Ohio state will maybe give, give me you. an honorary MFA. I don't know. It's the next step be after being in the library that you grew up in. Yeah. Is the place you get an honorary yeah, MFA absolutely. where I can like yeah. maybe even just finesse that into something else. Into but, like a professorship. Yeah. This is, a, yeah. This is a, there's a whole thing on And then I'm president. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> That's a job I do not want. But uh, oh, 
No, I, so it was a lot of like self, self teaching and self discipline, which is uh, the discipline, especially manifests itself. I think in my work now because I have to be so disciplined to to write in the way I do, mm-hmm. and the different, and to like enter different um, mindsets with my writing because I'm like, you know, this year I've written at least in like four different types of ways. You know, like mm-hmm. the the music writing and the poetry writing and the like I wrote a little for TV and then like, you know what I mean? And so it's like a, a oh, difficult thing. I forgot to thing. ask you about that. I don't mean to cut you off, but no, I, we're, yeah, we're running yeah. out of time. I want to make sure we get to it. You wrote for the MTV Awards? Is that what The MTV VMAs. Yeah. 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 Um, this was a much better one than they've been. Was this your first time? On yeah, it? it was my first it time It was ever. horrible last year. So That's like, what I've heard. Y- y'all did like a... a, 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 a yeah, a lot of a lot of people, a lot more people watched, I think. Than, yeah. Did you feel, do you feel in being in those kinds of spaces, I like struggle with the fact that there's like a 40% chance I go Hollywood. Like, yeah. do you struggle with that at all? Going like, Hollywood? What, what does going Hollywood mean in your mind? I mean, I, I don't, well, so. <laughs> I completely pulled in a different direction. No, this <laughs> is a good question. So I, cause I think about it a lot. I think oftentimes now about like, um, I don't worry about going Hollywood because I think with any kind of like measure of quote unquote success, I am often then pulled closer and closer to home. Mm. You know, like shortly after the VMAs, like I went home, like I went to Columbus where people don't give a shit that I wrote the VMAs, you know, or like people don't give a shit how many copies my book sold. They just want to like crack jokes, you know what I mean? And like go to the, go to the ice cream spot that we used to go to. And, And so, um, I don't one like let's be real like I am not anywhere close to Hollywood fame but like um, well you don't have to be famous to be Hollywood I guess that's true trust me that is true that is I think that is the problem yeah so because it's like an inner thing right like it's the inner like going Hollywood is all this imagined inner thing and I'm I'm really far away from that man I I like being at home and playing video games when I can and are um, you afraid of it? Because am I, I afraid of it? I don't, it doesn't always happen intentionally. I think I think that's Daniel's fear. That's what I'm most is that I'm gonna so, wake up one day and I'm gonna have like I don't big think glass I don't think windows yeah. in the house and I'm gonna be wearing like too right. much cologne. Right. I don't think like common like silk ever Gucci. said like I'm gonna stop rapping about Asada and like and start rapping about like get a job on Hell's Bells. Yeah. Yeah. And <laughs> common sh- uh, shout out to old shout yeah, out to sh- old common shout out to common shout out to shout out to common sense. Yeah. <laughs> Perhaps not so, just common. So ironic that he lost the common. Lost the com- um, do I worry about going Hollywood? Not really. Because I think, do, do I fear it? Not really. I think um, a thing I talk about a lot is that like being from the, growing up in the Midwest and like the real, not, Chicago is also the real Midwest. But like growing up in the. Nah, Mid- we don't consider ourselves. <laughs> we don't take that offensive. Growing up in the Midwest that is like the real Midwest. I, I don't there are things that are implanted in me that are, that will not allow me to um, get to a point where I I don't return phone calls or texts. You know what I mean? Like I'm that guy where, yeah. Is it harder for me to like return an email in a super timely fashion as you found out? Yeah. Like it's, it's a little harder for me like on a busy day to return an email within two hours of that is a different thing than it was a year ago. And a thing I struggle with is it, am I like, if you shoot me a Facebook message, is there a chance I like legitimately will not see it for five days? Absolutely. Right. But I do try to, I am still here for my people and all the forms my people take. Mm-hmm. And I, that will like never change. Right. Like, yeah. and also just I'm the dude who writes things. Right. I'm not like a, I'm not in like a blockbuster movie. The VMAs is a really interesting thing where I had, I did have some panic and anxiety about like, God, are people going to hate? Are people like back home going to like mm. feel like I've crossed over to this different thing now? But no one gave a shit. Right. Like, like, no one cares. <laughs> That's the thing is that everyone's the star of their own movie. Yeah, and everyone exactly. Everyone else is like playing a supporting role <laughs> in everyone else's movie. And so, yeah, the odds that people would be like, I'm going to take a really strong stance about any writing for the VMAs. Yeah, no one cared. I went home and I was at like a, maybe an open mic or like a in a room. And one of my friends was excitedly like, yo, Hanif is Hanif was just in New York and he wrote the VMAs. And this woman leaned over and she was like, what are the VMAs? <laughs> and I was like, you're my, you're my person. Yeah. <laughs> you're, you're more likely to go home than go Hollywood. Yeah. Yeah. I would, I would, yeah. I don't even know what going Hollywood yeah. look like for me. I buy, I buy more sneakers now than I used to. Look, I mean, we all can dream. Yeah. This, is, this is the next step. Yeah. <laughs> um, we're, I, before we um, get out of here, first of all, I want to say just thank you for, Thanks for having being me. here. Go get the book. It's out in the world. It now. is out in the world. I don't. It's at bookstores, but I don't know which ones. 
Cool. You can't list them. <laughs> so it's go, at several. <laughs> I, I will assume that it may also be on the internet. It is in, definitely in on the place. internet. <laughs> okay. It is right. at like Amazon at buttonpoetry.com at smallpressdistributions.com. I think it's at barnesandnobles.com. And I, I just, I appreciate, like I said, you being here. I, I said to you in the car, like Morgan Parker has this great line, which is uh, she wants someday to love something the way people from Chicago love Chicago. Yeah. And you're the only person I've ever met who loves where they're from the way I have to deal with people here talking about, talking about Chicago. <laughs> so I really appreciate that. And I Morgan, shout out to Morgan Parker, too, who is a legend. Absolutely. Yeah, she is. A like, le- for yeah, real. For sure. Um, a- any other last like plugs? Any other thing? Where, where can the people, people find you? you? Like find me in life, yeah, on the internet. Like no, where will you be next Thursday? Next Thursday, uh, back in no, I'll be in like the South next Thursday. So if you happen to be in like Tuscaloosa, Alabama, come through. Um, but on the internet, uh, if you're in Tuscaloosa, I feel like y'all should link up together. Link up for sure. (laughs) Help me, like definitely make that. I don't know where the good sneaker spots are in Tuscaloosa, but you know, hit me to them because I need to go. Um, online, my website is just my last name. It's abdurakib.com. Uh, my Twitter is at Neef Muhammad, N-I-F-M-U-H-A-M-M-A-D. I tweet a lot about music and sports and my dog. So sorry about that in advance. What's your dog's name? Uh, her name is Liebchen, which is German for, I think, sweetheart or darling. My my partner named her. Much love to Liebchen. Much shout out to Liebchen. <laughs> shout out. Gang, gang. <laughs> shout out to Liebchen. <laughs> Thanks for right, listening. That's it. That's we'll, be back, we'll be back next week with another Strong Voice from Chicago and beyond. Much love to the people. Peace.